Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Our second reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, as Justin mentioned. You can find that on page 955 of those pew Bibles. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these, put, these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray and explore that text. So keep that open in front of you, the page 955. Let's pray and explore it together. Father, many of us can testify and say the truth that we were once dead as a valley of dry bones and yet you spoke to us and we heard the gospel and, um, and you raised us from the dead. You gave us life, you breathed your spirit into us and now we know uh, that you are the Lord and we look forward to a resurrection to come but we take the light in what we can experience now, namely power from above. And so we pray that the power that raised Christ from the dead will be at work in us this evening, tonight, even as we hear your word, your voice by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen? Okay. Last night, those of us who uh, stayed up and watched it witnessed a coronation. And in particular, um, the coronation of a person, a particular person from a particular family. And uh, that one, Charles, was crowned king. That is, he ascended to a throne. There were some steps there. And he sat down on the throne and certain people sat at his if I can put it this way, right hand. That is, they shared his sovereignty, namely his family. And in doing so, their lives were or are transformed, for, for better or worse. In our text today, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 14, we discover that an even greater thing has happened to you. An even greater thing has happened to you than what happened to Charles last night. If you are in Christ. A greater thing has happened to little you, but unknown you. According to Paul, you were raised and seated with Christ. Now, no one televised it. I guess it's a little bit like that anointing with oil bit with King Charles. The thing that has happened to you is intensely personal and indeed sacred. And here it is. Let me show you in the text. It's Colossians 3 verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, Christ is the word that means Messiah, which means king. And Jesus was raised from the dead as king. And what's being said here is, you were raised with him. Now, explore what this means in a moment. But the sister text that we looked at last week goes even further. Ephesians 2 verse 6 and God raised us up with Christ, and here it is, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, that's happened with, you, with your feet planted firmly in the real world. God looks at you and says, this one, unknown as they are, seated with my king, right, with Christ, in the heavenly realms, and sharing in his sovereignty your life, gets transformed, not for better or worse, but for better only, even if it involves suffering. Our post-Easter series is called Resurrection Hope. We believe God has been transforming lives since AD 33, and today we explore a miraculous transformation, our lives, our living 
now. This afternoon, we're answering the question, how will the transformation take place in our lives? And what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with it? What are the nuts and bolts of change? Here's how many of us feel about the need for change, and I speak for myself, that is something like this. I know I need to change in various areas of my life. I want to change, and yet I'm afraid to change. I get pretty defensive of myself, and I find sometimes that I can't change. So we're idealists on one hand, we want something better, and yet we're cynics or realists. On the other hand, we feel like I, I, can't, I can't make the change that I know I need to make. We know that we really need to love people better than we do, and yet something gets in the way. We need to change some bad habits, some, some bad mindsets. And some of those habits or mindsets are about the way we relate to others. Um, and maybe even the people that we love the most. Um, and maybe we feel like we can't do it. The mindset is too strong, the habits too formed. We want to be better than we are, but find it hard. I was on the train a little while ago and there was this guy, a very big guy, looking all very mean. He was tattooed up and pierced all over, uh, looking very prickly, very set in his ways, and he was reading a book. What was the book he was reading? Was it, was it you know, punk rock, rock for, a, for an apathetic age? Was it um, tattoos your mum would hate? No, he was reading a self-help book called Reclaiming Your Place by the Fire, How to Live Your Life on Purpose. <laughs> All tattooed up, looking mean, but what he wants is a cosy place by the family fire. He wants things to be better than they are. Why do people read those books? Christian people want a place around God's fire. That is, they want to be at home with God. In the Bible, in the New Testament, that means to be in Christ or in the Messiah. And a change happens when, when we find ourselves there, and the change is expressed in our text today with this remarkable word. Look at it. Paul writes, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. It's a clothing image to put on the new self, having taken off the old self. We'll come to that in a moment. To put on the new self, not the old self, put on the new self, which Paul says is being renewed over time or transformed after the image of God. In other words, over time we are to look like God or to be Christ-like and for God to do that in our lives. The question then for the Christian is what, will, what would compel such a transformation? What would motivate us to make the healthy changes that I know I need to make and to grow up as a human, you know, a, a, um, an, an Adam, an e, a, a, a son of Adam, a daughter of Eve, or a new human, the way that God wants humans to be and to live well in this world? How will we do this? Well, here are some options you could try. 
You could do the one lots of people say. They say, this, this is the first option. One, you could say, I can do it. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I've got all the power. I'm going to follow my heart. My heart is good. And I'll watch the changes take place. This is what I call the Disney option. You know, this is, you know, I can do it. I believe in me. But the Bible places no confidence in the human heart left to its own devices. I think left to its own devices, the human heart will regularly just change the goalposts and we get defensive. Here's another one, you could, you could say this. Number two, you could say a civic mindset will compel transformation. You know, we need the, we need the sort of societal rules. The good order of society will act as guardrails. I call this one the, the, hand, the handmaid's tale option, where conformity is key. But people rarely transform their inner lives for society, I think a point made powerfully by Margaret Atwood's work, where if you read it or watch it, all the guardians of morality are deeply immoral. They're deeply immoral. Or you could say, here's a third one, obedience to rules will transform my life. I just need to find out what the rules are and you know, go ahead and do them. Now this is admirable, but Paul has claimed in the previous chapter that it's not enough, that something more is needed. In Colossians 2 verse 21, he says that the rules by themselves have no value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, rules will stop public lewdness, maybe, but rules will not quench the inflamed lusts of the heart. We're going to do something else, something deeper. These three motivations, as I've presented them, they don't go deep enough. They tinker on the edges without reaching into the inside. They don't reach into your whole story to rewrite the story. They change the color of the paint without renovating the house. But we need a renovation. So what is it? Well, for the Apostle Paul, it's something more radical than those options, something more miraculous. For Paul, if you are in Christ, you are united or grafted into his kingship, and so something has happened to you and for you. So here are three things you can do if you find yourself in Christ. Now, if this doesn't describe you, um, if you are, if I can put it this way, religious, or um, you prefer to spiritual, or you know you like Christian values, you find them appealing, then that probably means you're on the outside looking in. Um, and this message then is a little look-see into what a transformed life could look like. I'll even give you an option to join us on the inside in a moment. In a moment's time, three things you can do, and this, by the way indicates all the metaphors that are layered in this text. Number one, set your mind somewhere, verses one through four. Kill something else, verses five through 11, that's surprising. And thirdly, get dressed. Set your mind somewhere, kill something else, and get dressed. So firstly, set your mind somewhere, the first four verses. Where are you to set your heart? Where are you to set your mind? Well, Paul's answer is, on things above. So it's in verse 1, if you're following. Since then you have been raised 
with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. So it turns out this king wants your heart and mind. He's into hearts and minds. So set your mind or, or heart, you might say reset your mind or focus it, not on the banal or the base or on mere desires. He calls these things earthly things or things of the earth, but rather on higher things or the highest thing, on things above where Christ currently is enthroned and seated at the right hand of God. An opportunity here. And what is the motivation for such a, a resetting of the mind, um, a resetting of the heart? And the answer is in verse 3, because you died. <laughs> the answer is because you're dead. That's what Paul says. You say, really? Like when? When did that happen? It's metaphoric, of course, like last week. And the answer is, when Jesus went to the grave, that's the day that I died. He took me there. Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does this mean? It means your story is not your own, not anymore. Your story is bound and found in Jesus' death. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Such an intimate way of viewing my new identity. I'm tucked into Christ's life, which is tucked into God's life. You say, I, just, I thought I was just a Christian. Well, Christian, right? In Christ. That's true. But it turns out that my whole life was folded into Christ in God. My old life went to the tomb that day, and so I don't have to protect my old life anymore. I can move forward with a new life. There's a, an old television show called The Band of Brothers, a World War II TV series. Uh, it was a sensational show if you get a, you know, if you're looking for a new, a new television show. Um, but there were a band of brothers, a, a group of main characters who, who uh, experienced the horrors as well as the camaraderie uh, of, of, uh, of live action in, in World War II. And there's a reoccurring theme where the main characters, who are all a little bit afraid, very human, they watch this guy time and time again charge past them when it's time to go into a battlefield. He charges past them, you know, all the guns are firing, and he just grabs a gun, walks past them without hesitation and without fear into the field of battle. And once or twice, he'll return from the battlefield while they haven't gone out because they're afraid. And he'll just come back with blood all over him and he'll be smoking a cigarette. And regularly they're saying, how, do they, how does he do it? How, how, how did he have no fear? And after a couple of times this happening, they ask him how he does it. And he replies, I'll tell you the secret. You tell yourself you're already dead. In other words, you've got nothing, nothing to protect. The other guys were trying to protect their old lives. This guy wasn't. I'm already dead. Off he goes. Now, there's a difference for us, a positive one. We have died, but we are now raised. 
but it's a similar illustration in the sense that we're, the idea is we're not interested in protecting then our old lives and lusts. That's an old me, not the new me. And so I'm now invested in a new life, in a new identity. Now, to some, you think to yourself, well, that sounds like I, um, a Christian loses his or her personal identity. If my life is hidden with Christ in God, who am I? But the testimony of Scripture and of many writers and theologians, C.S. Lewis is great on this, the testimony of millions of millions of simple believers like me, the testimony is this, that instead of losing my identity, I found my true identity hidden in Christ. In a very real sense, I came alive at, from out of the shadows, which I think is the sense of verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's a future thing. We'll come to that next week. Eugene Peterson renders this verse this way. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. Now, what's the text saying? It's asking us to visualize and then orientate our hearts and minds differently, to reckon my life differently. Namely, that the day that Christ died is the day I died. The day that Christ rose is the day I rose and gained a new life to live. And like King Charles was asked to view himself differently last night, you are, being to, you are being asked to view your life differently. You are seated with the resurrected Christ, your royalty. And so we need to act like we are in the courts of God. This is not in my notes, but I listened to an extraordinary set of podcasts on uh, The Rest is History, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook, for those of you who are fans. And uh, they walked through three episodes on, on the coronations back a thousand years. And they talked about a, a coronation before William the Conqueror called Elwi, King Elwi, in 950 AD. And, uh, and uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury um, crowned him at the Abbey. And uh, after the coronation, he didn't do what you're supposed to do after a church and stay around greeting people, you know, nice service vicar. He goes off to a room with two women and acts in a, a debauched way. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dunstan, and uh, the Archbishop of York were one of the few people willing to speak up to the new king and say, you can't act this way. And so they go to his bedroom and find him there and bust his chops. And they say to him, what are you doing? You've just been crowned king. And this is the way you're behaving. And uh, we're told that he threw his crown down on the ground as it even as he acted like a pig. And apparently this is the first time in, uh, in English history that a crown is mentioned. Fascinating. But there's a guy, crowned and king, has no interest in acting like a king. And the archbishop says to him, start acting like you are. We could say the same thing to ourselves. Seated with Christ, act as you are. But then secondly, you're gonna to have to kill something else. Now that's a surprise, but 
in the ancient context, kings go to battle. And so you and I are to go to battle, but not against others in armies, but rather we are to kill what belongs to our old self. This is where the sword belongs to those who are in Christ. In verse 5, put to death, therefore, right, go into battle against whatever belongs to your earthly nature, the base stuff, the banal stuff. Mortify it in the old language. And then he names what to mortify. Put to death, for example, sexual immorality. The Greek word there is poneia, put it to death. Impurity, lust, put it to death. Evil desires and greed, which he nominates is, is adultery. Greed is adultery. These things, he says, belong to the old self, as well as anger, and we'll come to that in a moment. But Christ, when he went to the grave, he didn't just go for my sin. He took my sin there with him. And because you cannot separate the sin from the sinner, he took not only my sin, but he took me there, in a sense, into that tomb with him. And he defeated sin in that tomb and came out alive with a new life. And Jesus says, I'll take the old self, your old self, with me to the tomb and I'll deal with that old self. I'll, I'll deal with it. And so my sin then has been buried in the tomb, so why go back to it? Isn't that like a dog returning to its vomit, if I can borrow from, from the book of Proverbs? So whatever it is that belongs to your earthly nature, Paul says, kill it off, cut it out, put a pillow on sin and smother it. You could say crucify it, and then leave it there in the tomb. And he gives an example. Sexual immorality, which is the Greek word is porneia, which is sexual activity outside the context of marriage. Do something, you see. Do something about that. He says impurity, evil desires, which is uh, the word there. The word evil is not there. It's like um, strong, uh, sort of overriding desires for something else that rules all your choices. It's related to all the fears you have and the dreams you have. And it's related to greed. I have to have this and that as a primary drive. And because it's primary and therefore a higher love, even if it's an inordinate love, it is then, of course, when you think about it, idolatry. But these things are the problem that separates us from God. They are the reason that Jesus went to the cross. They're the reason that Jesus took them to the tomb. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But, writes Paul, that was your old story. That was your old story. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves also of such things as these. And then another list. Um, anger, that's the temple one. It's a killer, put it to death. Rage, um, malice, slander and even filthy language from your lips. All these things belong to the old life, not the new life. He took all my anger and all my lies that were tearing down the trust in my relationships, all that anger, all that temper, all those lies, and he buried it in the darkness of the tomb. And so there's only one approach to such anger, 
There's only one approach to such lives, and it's to this, it's to leave it in the tomb. Leave it buried in the tomb. Christ took it there, leave it there. It doesn't belong in the new life in Christ. He took all my uber desires that were eating away at the walls of my soul. He took it to the tomb and buried it there. There's only one approach to inordinate desire, and that's to leave it there, buried in the tomb. Leave it there. He took all my greed. He buried it in the tomb. Leave it there. He took my sexual misconduct, and he dealt with it. Forgave my sins, buried it in the tomb. In the new life in Christ, you leave it buried in the tomb. You do something now. He took all, away all my bad language, abusive language, filthy language, gossip, toxic talk. He took it to the tomb, leave it there. And then he turns it into something positive. He says, when Jesus came up out of the tomb, he seated me next to him as a, a new Adam, a restored human being in the image of the invisible God, and he teaches me a new way of living. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have, here it is, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So it's not just to leave the lie buried in the tomb, but bring the truth out of the tomb, a truth that now bridges trust. Bring it out of the tomb. Let truth live. There it is. Let truth live. He gave me new desires. Bring those desires out of the tomb, the good ones. Put on the new desires. Let the life-giving desires live. Let them live in your life. He gave me sexual wholeness, keeping sex and covenant together. Let it live in your life. Some of us battle with this. We often, and I think it's because we don't take up the challenge um, to claim the new life we have and to do something aggressive about it, to put to death what belongs to the, to the earthly nature. And we don't do it together in community, challenging each other in a renewed community in verse 11. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. The old dividing lines, they're all taken down. You are one in Christ, and Christ is all and is in all. We claim the cross of Christ as an agent of forgiveness, but not an agent of change. We claim the cross of Christ as an agent of justification, but not of sanctification. Tom Wright says this of this text, he says, the ethical program, right, don't lie to each other, but since you've taken off the old self, put on the new self, the ethical program of Colossians 3 stands four square on the victory of the cross. This is not works. The powers of lust that tell you that you can't resist them. The powers of fear, suspicion, and greed that tell you that you must get angry because you're trying to protect it, right? And you must use violence. These powers were defeated on the cross. They have no rights over you. The battle has been won. You have everything you need to live the Christian life. You have the weapons. You have the resources. These weapons need to be deployed. Deployed. You may have forgotten who you are, not remembering who you are in Christ. You are 
like royalty, act like royalty, and be transformed. And the third thing is, having come up out of the tomb, and you're up for the fight, right? Having come up out of the tomb, raised with Christ, up for the fight, put to death what belongs to the earthly nature, you are now to get dressed since you've put on the new self. And so he says in verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, you are, by the way, you are holy and dearly loved as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves, there it is, clothe yourselves, not with thread, but with character, not with behaviours, but with virtues. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Clothe yourselves with kindness. Clothe yourselves with humility, gentleness, and patience, like Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus Christ. And clothed in these, you are now ready to relate to others with grace and forgiveness and, and inflexibility. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And you do all this because you want to be like God, Christ-like, being renewed each day in the image of your Creator. You need to look like God, which is why Paul writes, forgive, comma, as the Lord forgave you. As the Lord forgave you, in the same way, if you know the forgiveness of the Lord, forgive. And over all these virtues, verse 14, put on love, more clothing, Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. If you watched last night, lots of clothing metaphors. You see, when you are already dead and have exited the tomb with Jesus, you get to leave your old life and live the new one. This is good news. And if you do that, you cannot be half a Christian, letting half of your life be touched by God or Christian values. Each room of your life must be challenged. Each room of your life must be affected. And each part of your life renewed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. This is the transforming power of the resurrection. Let me pray. Father, we have resources that are enviable to millions, perhaps billions, seeking to change their life or improve their life. Or We have Jesus Christ, who's done the work for us, fully and completely on the cross, having forgiven all our sins and counseled the written code that stood against us. He's done, all, done it all, the, the work is finished. Mm. And yet, in a very real sense, we find ourselves in him. Dead, and yet taken to the tomb. Alive, having been raised with Christ. Seated at your right hand. With power. For a new character that will be attended with new behaviours in a new life, no longer toxic, but joyful and constructive and peaceful and kind and compassionate, no longer interested in simply protecting self, but serving others. We pray again that the power that raised Christ from the dead
will be at work in us today and perhaps even now as some of us are, are praying, perhaps even now that your mighty Holy Spirit would touch a life tonight, a heart and a mind tonight, that they would know the extraordinary truth of the gospel, that we've been raised with him, having once been dead in our transgressions and sins, having been raised in him to live a new life. We beg you for this, for Christ's sake. Amen.